Well, as I begin to teach the book of Matthew, I can't tell you what sense of nostalgia has come over me. There's been a lot of it because the book of Matthew was the very first book of the Bible that I had studied and learned that all of Christ's claims were true when I was a young man. And so today, I'm going to introduce to you the most basic themes of the book of Matthew as presented by the Apostle Matthew. He's going to present for you that Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of all of the expectations for Israel's Messiah. Now, today, my prayer and desire is that for all of you out here who have loved the Lord for so many years, that you continue through Matthew just to fall in deeper love with your Lord and Savior. But perhaps there are some who are listening, perhaps tuning in to our YouTube, and you're hearing this message or following messages. My prayer for you is that if you've never come to faith in Christ, that you would realize through the predictive prophecies in Matthew that all of Christ's claims are true. That you would learn, as I did as a young man, that Jesus is Israel's Messiah. Now today I want to begin by explaining who Matthew was as the author. And I want to talk a little bit about the dating of the book of Matthew. Let's begin with the author. The author of Matthew is Matthew, no shock there. But remember, Matthew was an apostle. And as an apostle, he speaks the very words of Christ. Remember, I've laid out in other messages that there are four criteria that the apostles had to meet. And we know no one can meet those criteria today. And the apostle Matthew met all of them. And therefore, he speaks authoritatively for Christ. Now, Matthew's name, as you see on the screen there, means gift of Yahweh. He actually had a tribal name, which was Levi, but his common name was Matthew, which meant gift of Yahweh, or literally, in our vernacular, it would say he was a gift from God. But it's interesting to note that as he had to surround himself with the other 11 disciples, these Jewish disciples probably would not have seen Matthew as a gift from God. And that's because Matthew was a tax gatherer. And as a tax collector, he would have been levying taxes on many of these Jewish disciples who were fishermen in Galilee. And of course, for a couple of reasons, these disciples would not have liked him. Number one, because no one likes the tax man. No one likes to pay taxes. But more importantly, they would have seen Matthew as a sellout to the Roman government. The reason being is, according to the law of Moses in Exodus chapter 22, you are not to charge interest on a fellow Israelite. Well, Matthew was doing that because he would tax on behalf of the Romans and then siphon off a percentage for himself. And so he would not have been seen as a gift of Yahweh, but rather a curse to many of these men. And it wasn't only till later when they all came to faith in Christ that he probably would have been accepted by the other disciples. Now, Matthew was called, we're going to find out in Matthew 9.9. Remember when he's called, it wasn't a subjective unction that he received, but a personal objective calling by Jesus Christ. We're going to find that in Matthew 9.9. The calling of Matthew occurs right after the healing of the paralytic man, but right before you have that big banquet with all of the tax gatherers and the sinners, of which one was Matthew. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the dating of Matthew. I believe the book was probably written, at least disseminated, between 60 and 63 AD. Let me explain why I think this is a big deal. Because in Matthew 22, 7... Matthew records Jesus is predicting the destruction of Jerusalem. Many liberal scholars claim 
that Matthew must be dated to after 70 A.D. Why? Because they reason in their minds that there is no God who reveals the future to these apostles. And so they can't believe that there's predictive prophecy. So they try to claim that Matthew wrote the book of Matthew between 80 and 85 A.D., somewhere in there. But what I'm going to show you is there's good reason to believe that, no, there is predictive prophecy in Matthew, as we will see. And the external evidence suggests that it was written earlier than 70 A.D. Now, the one strand of etern- excuse me, external evidence that I can give you this morning comes from a man named Irenaeus. Why should we listen to Irenaeus' testimony? Well, one of the reasons we should listen to Irenaeus is because he knew two men, Polycarp and a man named Papias, who both were acquaintances with the Apostle John. So when you hear the testimony of Irenaeus, realize you have a man here who had a connection to the Apostle John himself. So listen to what Irenaeus said in Against Heresies. He said, Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect while Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome and laying the foundations of the church. Now a couple of things I want to mention with this quote here, pull up my pointer. Notice, first of all, Irenaeus says that Matthew's gospel was written among the Hebrews in their own dialect. And from that, some scholars have concluded that perhaps the first gospel of Matthew was not written in Greek, but it would have been written in Hebrew or Aramaic. Now, we don't have any evidence of that. We don't have any manuscripts that would suggest that. So I don't think that that's the best understanding. Other scholars surmise that perhaps Matthew had a source. How many in here have ever heard of Q? A quell in German. It means source. And the idea is the apostles had the source of written material that they had put down. They drew from that. And the thought is maybe that was in Hebrew and Aramaic that Matthew and the other disciples had. And from there he comprised the gospel. Here's my take on it. I think more than likely the term dialect is used more loosely. It has to do with the Semitic form that Matthew wrote his gospel in. Now, let me explain what I mean by Semitic form. It would have been a form that the Israelites would have readily understood and been more comfortable with. Let me give you a concrete example. When you read Mark and Luke, there's a constant reference to the kingdom of God. Well, in Matthew, he still refers to the kingdom of God, but he changes God to heaven. It's the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because to the Jewish mind, you don't use the name of God lest you use the name of the Lord in vain. And so that's the Semitic form that I think is probably being referred to here. And again, I think the gospel was originally written in Greek. Now, for our purposes, what's more important for the dating is notice in red, it says that he comprised this gospel, that is Matthew did, while Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome. Most scholars will agree that Peter and Paul were only at Rome together between 61 in 62 AD. And I think we should take that seriously. So I think Matthew's probably compiling this gospel, 58, 59. Perhaps he has it finished at 60. It starts being disseminated, but it's disseminated while you have Peter and Paul preaching in Rome. Certainly years prior to 70 AD. And so we don't need to listen to the liberal theologians who say, no, there's no predictive prophecy in Matthew, as we will find out. There is a lot of it. Now, what is the purpose behind Matthew? Before we just guess, we have to be somewhat circumspect because Matthew does not tell us explicitly what his purpose is 
in his gospel the way John did, for example, in John 20, 31. Remember, in John 20, 31, John said that I have written to you who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Matthew does not tell us a purpose statement the way John does. But rest assured, we can deduce from what he writes that his purpose is the same. That you and I would know Jesus is the Messiah. And so when we look at the first purpose, I think the first purpose is obviously that Matthew wants us to know Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. In fact, we'll be covering the first verse today. Matthew 1.1, notice what he says. It's the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is presenting to us the Messiah of Israel. And so to Matthew, he sees Jesus as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament expectations. They're all found fulfilled, ultimately, in the person and work of Christ. Second, the Gospel of Matthew attempts to answer this question. I think it does it very well. If Jesus is the Messiah, why did he not establish yet the kingdom to Israel? Why did he not yet establish Israel's kingdom? Well, what we find out is that from Matthew's writing, Jesus the Messiah came the first time as Israel's suffering servant, but he's going to come a second time as the glorious victor who saves his people finally and forever, sets up his kingdom, and judges his enemies. We also see in the book of Matthew that there's going to be a great postponement. In fact, remember in Matthew 23, Jesus is hot under the collar. He's been arguing with the religious leaders of Israel, and he says in Matthew 23, 39, your house is left to you desolate. You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He cites the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 118, 26. But notice the phrase, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. At one point in history, in the future, still future for us, Israel will, in mass as a nation, come to faith in the Messiah. So there's a postponement. And how long is that postponement? Until Christ comes again. It could be one day. It could be a hundred days, a thousand years. We don't know. It is always at hand. That's something that we learn in the book of Matthew. Number three, Matthew's gospel gives legitimacy to the Gentile mission. Why? Because after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in Matthew 28, we have the Great Commission. Because all authority has been given to the Lord Jesus on earth and in heaven, you and I are to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them the things that the Lord has commanded. Yes, it legitimizes the Gentile mission. So, for me, the primary task of Matthew as an apostle, as a gospel writer, is to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament messianic expectations. And what I'm very excited to do with you is I'm going to be showing you through this study of Matthew just how robust of an understanding Matthew had of the Old Testament and how Christ alone could meet the criteria of all the Old Testament expectations. Now, when we're going to talk about predictive prophecy, I want you to realize that not every prophecy in the Bible is simply a direct prophecy, this is that. No, it's much more profound than that. 
And so for Matthew, I want you to see that there were three different types of prophecies as he understood them. And these are categories that I want you to have in your mind so that you'll be a better interpreter of Matthew as well. So let's begin with the first type of predictive prophecy. And this is the easiest type. It's a direct prophecy. Oh, by the way, I'm sorry. Notice it's, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I forgot to put that up there. That's a phrase that you're going to see over and over and over in the, in the book of Matthew. In fact, ten times. You're going to see it. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. In fact, here are some of the examples. You're going to see it in Matthew 1.22, Matthew 2.15, Matthew 2.23, Matthew 4.15, a variation of it in Matthew 5.17. It's all over. You know why? Because Matthew sees Jesus as the fulfillment. That's what he sees. But again, he has a very robust understanding of how that works. So there's three different types of prophecies for Matthew and how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament predictions. The first type is what we call a direct prophecy. Very simple. The direct prophecy is simply this is that. The example that I put on the screen, notice Micah 5.2. That was the prediction in the Old Testament 700 years in advance. That was when it was written by the prophet Micah that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Of all the cities of the entire world, where is Messiah born? Bethlehem. Notice I have Matthew 2.6 up there. That's when Herod the Great, remember, he wants to murder the Messiah because he's going to be a rival king. And so he asked the chief priests, he asked the scribes, where is Messiah to be born? They cite Micah 5 too. They say, Bethlehem. It's a very direct prophecy. And you'll see many of those in the book of Matthew. The second type of prophecy is what we often call a typology. In the Old Testament, there was a pattern, a type that is set. And in the New Testament, you have a fulfillment of that pattern or what's called an antitype. Now, antitype does not mean against the type, but a fulfillment of the type. So there are patterns in the Old Testament that are set that Jesus Christ fulfills. Let me give you an example of this. Notice on the screen, Hosea 11.1. 1. That's where God says through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, what son was called out of Egypt in the Old Testament? It was Israel. In fact, God says to Moses in Exodus 4, Israel is my son. And why is it so significant that Israel is protected from being wiped out by the Egyptians at the Exodus? Because if you lose Israel then you don't have David. And if you don't have David, you don't have the Messiah who comes from David. No Israel, no Messiah. God protected his son. But notice on the screen, Matthew 2.15. Jesus is brought down where? To Egypt. Why? To protect the son. And protecting the son from whom? From Herod. Because whether you lose the son Israel in the Old Testament or you lose the Son in the New Testament, God's promises would be done. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the types, the type and the anti-type. Now, let me show you that the New Testament writers had an understanding of this typology themselves. It's not just Eric Dalma blowing smoke. Uh, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans 5.14. Speaking of smoke, there's been a lot of that lately. I don't need to be blowing any more of it, right? Romans 5.14. Please turn your Bibles there. And I'm going to show you here 
that Paul understood typology. In fact, he uses the Greek term tupos, or type. And you'll see this all over the Bible. I'll just give you three examples for, our, for the sake of time, for our purposes. Romans 5.14, here Paul is contrasting and comparing Adam and Christ. Adam, our first representative, and Christ, our new representative. Romans 5.14, Paul writes, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Notice the term type there, tupos. So in what way was Adam a type? Well, Adam was a man, our first representative, who went to a garden of perfection, and he said, not your will be done, but mine. Jesus, our new representative, He goes not into the garden of perfection, but that of Gethsemane under the weight of sin, and he knows it's coming at the cross, and he says, not my will, but thine be done. And he's the new representative. If you'll trust in him, you'll have righteousness. If you don't trust in him, you have Adam, and you have sin and death. So certainly, the New Testament writers knew of typology. Let me have you jot this one down. I won't have you turn to it, but jot down Colossians 2, 16 through 17. In Colossians 2, 16, that's where Paul says that the, the new moon festivals, the Sabbath days, the different religious festivals of the Jews, they were all merely a foreshadowing. He says they were a shadow, but the substance in verse 17, he says, is Christ. And so whether it was the sacrificial system, whether it was the feast, they were all foreshadowing and fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. That's the idea behind typology. Now, let me give you the coup de grace in Hebrews eleven nineteen. Please turn your Bibles there. I'll show you the writer of Hebrews saw typology. Please turn your Bibles to Hebrews eleven nineteen. Now, as you're turning there, remember in Hebrews 11, you're in that section. It's called the Hall of Fame of Faith. That's what I like to call it. Because all the men and women in this section who are godly obeyed God because they believed. They believed God's promises. So here in Hebrews eleven nineteen, it's all about how Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, his only son. Why? Well, the writer of Hebrews says he believed in the resurrection. Notice what he says. He says, this is... The writer of Hebrews talking about Abraham, Hebrews eleven nineteen. I hope you've turned there. It says, he, that's Abraham, considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. The term type there is the same term that we have in English for parable. That is, Isaac's life is a type or a parable pointing us to the reality of Christ. It's powerful. There's a pattern set by Isaac, and I'll talk more about this later, that ends up being fulfilled in the work of Christ. How so, you ask? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me give you one reason. When God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, how long does he travel to Mount Moriah? For three days. So in Abraham's mind, his son, his only son, is as good as dead for three days. How long is God's son in the grave for? three days. Where does Isaac and Abraham travel to? They travel to Mount Moriah, the very location where 1,900 years later, the Messiah is going to be sacrificed. And so Isaac goes up the mountain with wood on his back. The term for wood, zulon, is the same term used in the New Testament for the wood that was on Jesus' back. 
Isaac goes up the same mountain with the wood on his back. Christ, 1900 years later, goes up the same mountain with the wood on his back. Isaac gets to the top. He's supposed to be sacrificed, but God provides what? A substitute. That's how he received him back as a type. God didn't allow him to die. But some 1900 years later, God's only son does die. And he's raised from the dead. Isaac was a type of the one who was to come. And the New Testament writers had this robust understanding that predictive prophecy wasn't just this is that, but that there was a type in the Old Testament, a pattern that was fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. The third type of prophecy that you will see is called the application of Old Testament words or concepts. One of my favorites in the book of Matthew is what you see here in Matthew 2.23. That's where Matthew says that the Lord Jesus was called a Nazarene. And he doesn't say this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet singular, but by the prophets plural. Why? Because in Jeremiah and Isaiah and elsewhere, the Messiah is referred to the branch. He's the branch of David. What's the term for branch in Hebrew? Netzer. And the root of Nazareth is Netzer. It's the branch of David, the Messiah, grew up in Branchville. That's what Messiah is pointing out. And I'm sure there was a little twinkle in his eye as he made that connection for us. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ fulfills over 300 historically verifiable prophecies from the Old Testament. Let me tell you what this did for me when I was a young man. In the 1950s, there's a man's work who's still published today named Peter Stoner. He was a mathematician. And he looked at the predictive prophecies that Christ fulfilled, and he just took 48 of them. Now remember, Christ fulfills over 300 of them. 300 historically verifiable prophecies. But Peter Stoner, this mathematician, looked at just the fulfilling of 48 of them by one man. And he found that just one person fulfilling just 48 of the prophecies that Christ did would be the odds of 1 times 10 to the 57th power. But because that number is so large, and he knew that most people couldn't get our hands around that, he said, let me give you an example. And he said, if you took the whole state of Texas, and you filled the whole state of Texas knee-high with silver dollars, back then they had silver dollars, I guess. We don't have those today. I don't even think we have change today. Don't ever use it. But if you filled the whole state of Texas knee-high with silver dollars, and you mark just one of those silver dollars red, and he took a blindfolded person and put them in the state of Texas. And they got one pick of just one coin. The odds of them picking that red marked coin is 1 times 10 to the 57th power. And when I was a young man, 19 years old, I was moved by seeing the profundity of the predictions in Matthew. And I knew that there was a God in heaven and knew the future, that the Bible was his word, and that Christ was his son. That's what predictive prophecy is going to do for us in Matthew. Now, I want to talk about the structural flow of Matthew. That is the outline. And when we talk about the outlines of the book of Matthew, there are many different outlines that people have. I'm going to give you a very basic overview. And I'm following a scholar that I think gets the structural flow right. His name is R.T. France. And the reason I think he gets it right is he takes two things seriously. Number one... 
the discourses that Christ gives. This man takes careful attention of that. There are discourse markers in the language that shows us there's a movement of thought. But second, in the structural flow that I'm about to show you, it takes seriously the movement of Christ from Galilee to Samaria to Jerusalem. And when you read the book of Matthew from chapter 1 to chapter 28, Jesus starts in Galilee, and you know where he ends up? He ends up back in Galilee at the Great Commission. It's masterful. And the one thing that you'll think about is, wait, Jesus just went to Jerusalem once? That's what it seems like. Well, no, Matthew gives you clues that he's been there before. But there's one journey on the way to the cross of Jesus Christ that was most significant. And that's what Matthew focuses on. So let me show you the structure of it. First of all, we'll begin in Matthew 1, 1 through Matthew 4, 11. And again, here, we're going to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament expectations. He fulfills the prophecy. In fact, so glorious is this section, we're going to see that Jesus recapitulates the life of Israel. Now you might say, well, how is that so? Think back to Israel's history. In Israel's history, they had a form of baptism, according to the Apostle Paul. They had a type of baptism. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, they went through the Red Sea. And after their baptism through the Red Sea, where did they go? but the wilderness for 40 years where they failed miserably. They were an unfaithful son. Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 3, he's baptized. And he's baptized to identify with us. And where does he go in Matthew chapter 4? After his baptism, he goes into the wilderness. Just like Israel after their baptism. And he goes for 40 days, not 40 years. But he succeeds and he's faithful. Why? Because he's the faithful son that Israel never was. That's the robust understanding that Matthew has. That's the Messiah that he's presenting to us. That Jesus Christ is the faithful son that no one else could be. Matthew 4, 12 through 16, 20. Here you see the Messiah in Galilee. Remember, it was predicted in the Old Testament, 700 years in advance, Isaiah 9, that the Messianic age would begin in Galilee. And sure enough, it does. And through the doctrines and deeds of Christ, beginning in Matthew 4, all the way to chapter 16, it leads to the knowledge and the confession of the disciples that this Jesus is the Christ. In fact, you have the confession by Peter in Matthew 16. At the end of this section, he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Notice the passage I have up is verse 20. Do you know what Jesus says to him at the very end of that section? He says this. It says, Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Messiah. So through this entire section, you have a revealing to those whom God chooses, his disciples, and a concealing from others. Why? Because the temptation, if they knew he was the Messiah, would be make him king to kick out the Romans, not the suffering servant, to take away their sin. That's what you see. Now, from there we go to 1621, all the way through 2034 of Matthew, and you have this travel from Galilee to Jerusalem. And beginning in Matthew 1621, It says this, it says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. It sets the stage for him to travel to Jerusalem 
through Samaria and to suffer. All right, then when we get to Matthew 21 through 2546, this begins what we often call the triumphal entry. That's in chapter 21. I like to call it Lamb Selection Day. So Jesus here is in confrontation in this section with the leadership of Israel, and they really are a stand-in for all of Israel. The masses don't believe. And so that's why when you get to Matthew 24 through 25, Jesus gives the Olivet Discourse that talks about his second coming. That's what you have in this section. And then when we get to chapter 26 through 28, you have the Last Supper, you have the rejection of Christ, his arrest, his crucifixion, his death, burial, and the capstone, his resurrection. His resurrection proving all of his claims. And then after that, after the resurrection, you have the going back to Galilee where it all started. And there's the giving of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. The central movement in the book of Matthew is the Messianic age begins in Galilee. It culminates in Jerusalem with his death, burial, and resurrection. But at the very end, it ends up in Galilee again with the Great Commission. That's the overall flow and structure of Matthew. Okay. Now, what I want to do today is um, next week I'm going to be beginning to talk about the genealogy. I don't know how many weeks that will take to get through, perhaps one or two. But today I want to focus on Matthew 1.1. Matthew 1.1 is the first presentation Matthew gives that Jesus is the Messiah. And I want you to think about how powerful this presentation is. Because from the time of Malachi, think about the last Old Testament prophet, until the coming of John the Baptist, there were 400 years where there was no prophecy in Israel. There was silence. In fact, even Flavius Josephus says there was no prophet in Israel. And all of a sudden, John the Baptist comes on the scene of history, and he fulfills the prophecy in Malachi 4 that you're going to have this Elijah-like figure who prepares the way straight for the Lord, and then the Messiah comes. And so that's the privilege that Matthew has in introducing the Messiah. Notice he says, Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, when Matthew talks about the book of the genealogy, that's going to be the first 17 verses, the genealogy that we'll be studying together. But notice right away, he introduces the name Jesus. Jesus was a common name back in Israel in his day. The term Yeshua in Hebrew literally means Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. And I think there's a little typology. Remember, there was another Yeshua named Joshua in the Old Testament. Joshua's task was to bring the people of God into the lesser promised land. The greater Joshua, Jesus, is going to bring the people of God into the ultimate promised land. There's a typology there. But he's going to save the people from their sins, his people, And so his name is very apropos. Notice he's called the Christ. This is not his last name, but rather it is his title. The term Christos there means Messiah. It means an anointed one. And in the Old Testament, when someone was anointed, it really meant three things. Number one, that someone had the favor of God. Number two, that they were chosen by God. And number three, that they were endowed by God with power in the Spirit. And so in the Old Testament, there were three types of people in Israel who were often anointed. You had prophets, priests, and kings. In fact, so much so 
that when you get to the intertestamental period in the 400 years between the Old and the New Testament, you have a group of people called the Essenes in the Qumran area. They don't understand how one man can be a Messiah and be a prophet, priest, and king. So if you read their writings, they suggest there has to be three messiahs. But lo and behold, Matthew is introducing that all of the offices are fulfilled in this one man, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the king in the lineage of David. He is a prophet that came as Moses foretold in Deuteronomy 18.15. And he is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. It is shocking that all of this expectation can be fulfilled in one man. In one man, the Messiah, the one who is anointed and bears the Spirit and produces the Scriptures and the revelation of the New Testament, it's all found in him. Now, from there, notice Matthew says that he's a son of David and a son of Abraham. That's significant. Why? Well, because... Those are the two most prominent names in Israel in the genealogy that we're going to be studying. Let's begin with Abraham. Abraham's name means what? Well, it means the father of a multitude, the father of the nations. And so the great promise that through Abraham there's going to be this Messiah, it's a blessing not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles and all who will believe. And that's one of the very first promises that we see in the scriptures. I want you to see that the blessing given to Abraham, it's not just for the Jews. The messianic salvation is for Jews and Gentiles. And we see this promise all the way back in the law. Genesis 12, 3, God says this to Abraham. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All of the families in the lineage of Abraham are going to be blessed. Why? Because Messiah brings salvation to all who believe. Now, I want you to remember that when God gave the promise to Abraham that he was going to have a son, he promises that Sarah, his wife, is going to deliver that son. And you remember that he cuts a covenant in Genesis 15 with Abraham, and he reminds him, you're going to have the son. And as numerous as the stars are, so shall your descendants be. What's the problem? Sarah's too old to have a son. She's too old. And so Abraham thinks, well, I better help God out a little bit here. And he lies with Hagar, and you have the son of works that's given, which is Ishmael. But God reminds Abraham again in Genesis 18, no, your wife Sarah is going to have the son. And what does she do? She laughs at him. She scoffs at it. She laughs at any notion that she is going to be able to bear a son, so much so that when the son is born, Isaac, his name Isaac means laughter. It's a constant reminder that Abraham's wife scoffed at the notion that God could do this. Oh, Abraham and his wife Sarah aren't plaster saints. They're sinners like you and I. Yes, they believe, but they're faulted individuals. The greatness isn't in Abraham and Sarah. The greatness is in God. The God who promises and the God who delivers. So listen, after Sarah laughs, notice what we see here in Genesis 18, 13 through 14. You have, I believe, a theophany. A second person of the Trinity, pre-incarnate the Son, is talking verbally to them. And ironically, the birth of this Son will lead one day to his incarnation, the birth through a virgin. 
Listen to what he says. It says, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I am too old? Stop there. She laughed. She scoffed. There's no way I'm too old. It's impossible. Verse 14, notice in red, the Lord is asking this question. It's a rhetorical question, which demands an answer. There's an obvious answer to this question. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? What's the answer expected? No. Now, take note of this term difficult. Oops, I got to pull up my pointer. Notice the term difficult. The term in Hebrew there, pale, you could render that miraculous. Miraculous in Hebrew, pale. Because the same term is used in Genesis 9 6. Remember when the great promise that we often talk about at Christmas time of the Messiah unto us, a son is given unto us, a child is born, and his name is called what? Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful is the same term, pale. And I've said elsewhere in our studies in Isaiah that it should be best rendered miraculous. That Jesus isn't just going to be a wonderful counselor. He's a miraculous counselor. The real question, is anything too miraculous for Yahweh? The answer is no. And so he continues, he says, At the appointed time I'll return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Do you understand that when Sarah has a son, it's a miraculous birth. And it culminates in Jesus, the Messiah, in the miraculous birth through a virgin named Mary. No miracle of God, no Abraham's son. Whether it be Isaac or whether it be the Messiah. God's hand did it all. That's what we are to see in Matthew 1.1. Did humans do it? No, God did it. He brought it about. Now, let's move on. We see as the scriptures unfold that the Messiah is going to come from Abraham. He's going to come from Isaac. He's going to come from Jacob. Jacob is renamed Israel. Israel has 12 sons, which are 12 tribes. And in Genesis 49.10, of all the 12 tribes, we find Messiah is going to come from the tribe of Judah. But this begs the question, of all the families of the tribe of Judah, what family is going to bear the Messiah? We learn in 2 Samuel 7 that I'm going to put up on the screen that Messiah comes from David's lineage. I want you to see where that promise is given. Remember, before I put this up, David wanted to build the Lord a house. But the Lord tips it on its head. He says, no, David, I'm going to build you a house. Listen to the grace that he pours out as he promises the great messianic promises through David. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13, the Lord says this to David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you. Stop there. Does everyone see the term descendant there? That's the Hebrew term zarah. It's the term for seed. The very first seed promise related to the gospels found in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman is going to come and crush the serpent's head. That's the Messiah. And so the rest of the Old Testament unfolds and shows us the seed is going to come from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, from Judah, and now from David. It's going to come from the seed after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, it says, He shall build a house for my name. Talking about Solomon. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
Now, David certainly understood the seed to refer to Solomon and the other Davidic kings. But ultimately, he knew that it had to be the Messiah who would fulfill all of these promises. Now, you might say, Eric, you're just reading that into the text. Where do you see that he understood this as a messianic promise? Well, let me show you David's response. And I'm going to prove to you that David understood this not as referring to Solomon, but ultimately a promise that will be fulfilled in Christ. Now, before I do this, let me give you an example from another place in Scripture, just another example of this. Do you remember at Pentecost when Peter is preaching and the supreme proof that Jesus is who he claims to be is found from Psalm 16.10? The holy wood would not see decay. Do you remember Peter says that David, when he wrote that prophecy, he knew that that was not about himself, but it was about the Messiah. The Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, David knew Psalm 1610 was not about himself, that it was about the Messiah. In the same way, in 2 Samuel 7, in David's response, we see evidence that David knew that this promise of an eternal kingdom wasn't going to be fulfilled in Solomon, but it was going to be fulfilled in the Messiah. 2 Samuel 7, 18 through 19, it says, Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God. For you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. Stop there. Notice in blue, he knows it's not going to be fulfilled in the short term through Solomon. But this is a messianic promise that will be fulfilled in the distant future. And so profound is this promise that David understood. Notice in the very next part of the verse, he says, and this is the custom of man, O Lord God. Literally, the term custom in Hebrew there is Torah. Torah. It's instruction. David says this is instruction for all of mankind. That's what he's saying. Why does he say that? Because he knows that every man, woman, and child ultimately answers to this Messiah who's coming from his lineage. The coming Messiah who comes from David, that teaching is instruction for every human being on the planet. That's how significant the promise the Messiah comes from David is. Now, this begs the question, okay, we know Messiah is going to come from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, but what will he be like? And what's very beautiful is the Old Testament unpacks who this Messiah will be. And Matthew introduces him and explains him fully. That this Messiah, who's a son of David, isn't just a son of David, but he's David's Lord. And we see this all over the scriptures. Remember in Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a son is born, but he's also called mighty God. So the son of David, whoever he is, yes, he's going to be man, but he has to be truly God. So we're given this promise also in Isaiah 11. By the way, Isaiah 11, 1, notice I have verse 10. I couldn't fit it all on there. But Isaiah 11 and 11, 10 forms what we call an inclusio. It's bracketed by the same theme. And this is all about the messianic kingdom that Messiah will bring. So notice the promise. We are revealed here who's what the Messiah looks like that comes from David. It says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Let's just stop there. 
First of all, who is Jesse? Well, Jesse's David's father. So this is simply a fancy way of saying a shoot will stem from David. Now, why is this shoot and this whole idea of a stem and a shoot and a tree, what's all the metaphor about? Throughout the Old Testament, the Davidic kingdom is likened to a mighty tree. But the prophets see, because of the sinfulness of the human Davidic kings, that the tree is going to fall. And sure enough, in the deportation of 605, 597, and 586 B.C., because of the sin of the Israelites and the Davidic kings, the mighty tree of David is fallen. But the promise is that there's going to be this branch. There's going to be the branch of David, the Messiah, who comes forth. And he's going to come from David and establish all that the Messiah was to do. So the term shoot here that you see, the term in Hebrew is koter, and it means a new stem. So it's being emphasized that the shoot will spring forth from Jesse, and a branch, there's Netzer, from his roots will bear fruit. Now, whoever the shoot is, it has to be a human descendant because he's coming from David. But notice when you get to verse 10, the very end of the section, it says, Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. And again, Jesse's a stand-in for David who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Notice the term root here. Shoresh means the source of the stem. So whereas the shoot has to be a man who comes from David, the root is the source of David. In the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus argues with the religious leaders of Israel And he puts out this conundrum. He throws this one on the table. Can you imagine seeing this in your local political talk show? He asks the question, well, whose son will the Messiah be? And they've done some reading, they've done some research, and they say, oh, he's going to be a son of David. And Jesus cites Psalm 110.1. He says, oh, yeah? Well, then why does it say when David writes Psalm 110.1, the Lord Yahweh said to my Lord Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Jesus asked the question, how can the Messiah be David's son and yet David's Lord? And they couldn't answer it. But brothers and sisters, Matthew reveals it. The way that can happen is because this Messiah isn't just any man. He's the God-man. No one ever like it. Unique in all of history. You're going to read in the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 8, this Messiah really is a man. He eats, he drinks, he gets tired, and he's asleep in the back of the boat. But when the disciples cry out, this same Messiah can stand up and say, peace be still. And he commands the waves and the sea. Why? Because he's God. Truly man, truly God. And when the disciples realize this, they're more terrified of Jesus than they were of the storm. What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the seas obey him? Brothers and sisters, Matthew is going to be revealing to us that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, and he's the God-man. And you and I have the privilege of studying about him. 
I'm so excited to look into the glories of this book with you and to continue to learn in 1 Corinthians and Acts and Proverbs and all the other scriptures. And so what an honor it is for me to introduce to you this great book, the Gospel of Matthew, where we learn the Messiah, the God-man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the glories that we're going to be learning about your great son. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you gave Matthew a tax collector, your revelation, that you would move him by the Spirit to write your very word. We pray in the weeks and months and years ahead as we study your word through Matthew that you would give us insight to know what your author has said, that we may live lives that are pleasing to you. I do also pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be about the Great Commission as a church, that we would be about having the gospel upon our lips and in boldness when the opportunity arises that we would proclaim Christ crucified and raised from the dead, the Israel's Messiah, the God-man. We pray that you would do that through us and for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.